Well, good morning, everyone. If you're here for the first time or the second time, I see some of you out there, um, you're, you're in kind of for a, a doozy of a, of a message today. Um, so may, may the Lord uh, give you grace. Uh, we're, we're in the fourth message in a series of sermons uh, through the book of Genesis. And in the, the last couple of weeks, we looked at Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and looked at the big picture of God creating heaven and earth and everything in it. And then last week, we focused specifically on how God is sovereign over time. And Lord willing, next week, we'll take a close look at uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, and learn about what it means that mankind was created in the image and likeness of God. But in today's sermon, I want to step back and help us to think biblically about the Bible and history and science. My, my purpose is to give us some basic perspectives that will help us to remain faithful to Scripture, which is an indispensable part of loving God with all of our mind. We, we cannot love God well with our minds if our minds are at odds with His mind, which is revealed in Scripture. And so my aim is that you would have a, a deep conviction and unwavering courage to stand on the trustworthy Word of God. For some of you, this sermon will function mainly as a reminder to stay faithful, but for others, for newer believers or for parents who are thinking about discipling their kids and for youth, uh, this message has the potential to equip you to see the universe through a scriptural framework. So uh, let's, let's go ahead and pray. Father, I pray that you would have mercy on us. We are fragile creatures of dust who are prone to wander, and yet you have made us in your image, and you have made us in such a way that we would receive communication from you through the Bible for our good and so I pray that the Holy Spirit would direct our hearts and our minds and strengthen us in every needful way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with a reality check. It is important to say at the outset that the perennial human problem starting in Genesis chapter 3 and continuing down to the present time is that we have a grave tendency to disbelieve and reject God's Word. Psalm 1 sets forth the alternatives. The alternatives. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the instruction of the Lord, and on his instruction he meditates day and night. Jesus talks about the same reality in Matthew chapter 7. 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. What we ought to do is delight in the Lord's words and ponder them daily and be shaped by them and then actually put them into practice. But sinners like us are proficient at doing the exact opposite. Now, Scripture not only sets forth this contrast, but also makes it very clear that every single one of us is on the wrong side of the contrast unless and until God's grace rescues us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul gives an overview of what stuck-in-sin people look like. Verses 17 to 19, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What is Paul saying? Unconverted sinners are in a bad way. They have hard hearts that are resistant to God's will, and the result is that their minds are enveloped in darkness. They're totally disconnected from life-giving fellowship with God, and all this shows up in their actual conduct. Do you get the picture? Hard heart, dark mind, spiritually dead, morally bankrupt. Such people do not want to deal honestly with truth, which is why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that one of, the, one of the qualities that characterizes ungodly men is that they suppress the truth, Romans 1.18. Instead of being truth receivers, sinners are truth rejectors and truth suppressors. Such people have darkened hearts and their intellectual activity is an exercise in futility from God's point of view, but they hold influential positions in society. They lead institutions, own publishing houses, occupy teaching posts in the academy, write books, propose theories, run media companies, and function as the political and bureaucratic elite. Because of God's common grace, these people are capable of doing some good things but at the most fundamental level, their outlook and activity are at odds with God's wisdom. Except in cases where the Lord's grace has shown up to rescue a sinner out of the domain of darkness, people are fundamentally fools. They may be very bright fools, but they are fools nonetheless. This is basic Christian doctrine. And this basic teaching about the folly and futility of the sinful mind should have been enough to steer us clear of the suspect and misguided theories that foolish people promote. But one of the saddest things in the history of the world is how easily and quickly God's people capitulate to the intellectual fashions of the age. Capitulate means to give up or surrender. Instead of holding firm to the trustworthy Word, Titus 1.9, 
We give up the store and then congratulate ourselves on how clever and up-to-date we are. Israel was supposed to be holy and thus be a witness to her pagan neighbors and instead she envied her pagan neighbors and became worse than they were. The church is supposed to be holy and thus a light to the world, but when the church craves the world's acceptance and adopts the world's agenda, it becomes just like the world. And when this happens, you have a truth-suppressing world and a truth-suppressing church. And then, some fine church folks might complain about the church's lack of influence. Do not wonder. When the, where, where the fear of the Lord is replaced by the fear of men, where trembling at the Lord's words is replaced by trembling at the words of sophisticated academic elites or savvy podcasters, and where the desire to please the Lord is replaced by the desire to appear respectable in the eyes of your critics, the church's saltiness is lost. No courage, no backbone, no thus saith the Lord, no holiness. But at least we can have a nice relationship with the National Science Foundation and not be criticized too harshly by the good folks over at the New York Times. That ought to count for something, right? Now, before I say some sobering things about the church and her interaction with the claims in theories of modern science, I, I would like to say, and I want to be very clear about this, Bible-loving Christians have a positive regard for science and for applied science and for technology and for engineering. Remember what we learned last week in Genesis 1. God put the heavenly luminaries in the sky for signs, seasons, days, and years. And what this indicates is that God put regularity and predictability into the natural world. Genesis 1 testifies to the fact that God is a God of order and design. Plants, animals, and mankind have the ability to reproduce themselves. And plants and animals exist in various kinds and reproduce accordingly each within its respective kind thus there is a, a context for categorizing the diverse plants and trees and living creatures and and furthermore god put the earth and the earth's creatures under our dominion and so all of these things function as a green light to scientific endeavor, to study the world and uncover knowledge and system, systematize that knowledge into a transmittable form and to use this knowledge in order to be good stewards of the world that God put under our care. And therefore, it is entirely fitting for Christians to pursue vocations as scientists, as engineers, as medical doctors, and as nurses, as long as you don't sell your soul to any group that is under the control of hard-hearted, dark-minded, truth-suppressing people who want to co-opt Mr. and Mrs. Christian into their God-belittling agenda. As long as you can steer clear of that, you are free to pursue a fruitful career in the sciences. Now, with that in mind, let's get to the point, shall we? 
we'll begin by taking stock of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth in an undeveloped form on day one, and he completed the creation project on day six. The earth was created before the sun, the moon, and the stars. In fact, light was created before the sun. Plants and trees were created before the sun. Sea creatures and flying creatures were created before land creatures. The sea creatures and flying creatures were created on day five, and the land creatures were created on day six. All these were created according to their kinds within the space of just two days. None of these creatures evolved from any pre-existing creature, but all were created by the Creator's direct and special action. As for mankind, Adam and Eve were both created on day six. Adam was created first, being formed from the dust of the ground, Genesis 2-7, and then Eve was created out of one of his ribs, one of the man's ribs, Genesis 2.21. At the end of day six, everything was in its proper place. God saw everything that he had made, Genesis 1.31, and behold, it was very good. The whole creation was beautiful, well-ordered, and at peace. Everything was right, and nothing was wrong, and there was no death. There was no death, no corruption, no predatory behavior among animals, and no shedding of blood anywhere on the earth. Death, futility, and corruption did not enter into the world until until, until Adam refused to live in accordance with God's Word. And when you refuse to live in accordance with God's Word, you refuse to live. And the principle of death is at work. All told, Adam lived 930 years. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 5. And remember, God began His work of forming heaven and earth only five ordinary days before He made Adam. And Adam lived 930 years. Now in Genesis chapter 5, we have a genealogical record. When Adam was 130 years old, he fathered Seth who lived 912 years. When Seth was 105 years old, he fathered Enosh, who lived 905 years, and so on. This genealogical record takes us all the way to the flood. You can do the math. And subsequent geological records take us from Noah and his son Shem, who survived the flood, all the way to the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Jonathan Safarti writes, it's notable that long before Darwin, scholars who calculated the earth's age from the biblical data arrived at the same ballpark figure of about 6,000 years ago. In the 17th century, the famous Archbishop James Usher calculated the date of creation at 4004 B.C., Jonathan Sephardi calculated it as 4,178 B.C. The, the genealogical information in Scripture is not so airtight as to yield an exact date, but it is sufficiently comprehensive to land in the ballpark of about 6,000 years ago. Now, one response of what I just shared is this. 
Oh, so you're one of those people <laughs> who take the Bible literally. Those people is in scare quotes, by the way, because apparently people who take the Bible literally are supposed to be feared. In this mindset, the notion of taking the Bible literally is given an entirely negative connotation. The critic thinks that it's a bad thing to take the Bible literally, and the person who does take the Bible literally shows all the signs of a narrow-minded gullibility that is no doubt, in, no doubt informed by hate. Now, however much I would like to answer my critics, those of us in the church have to face up to the fact that massive segments of the church have dropped the ball on this. I wish that I didn't have to say that, but not saying it wouldn't make it untrue. Jonathan Safarti writes, After the rise of long-age ideas in the Enlightenment of the 18th century, many conservative biblical exegetes were intimidated by science, so they invented various schemes to squeeze billions of years into Scripture. So, let's, let's, let's put in a long gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, or between Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 1-3. Or let's, let's say that the days of Genesis chapter 1 weren't days at all, but instead were long ages. Or let's assume that Genesis chapter 1 isn't a historical account at all. It's just theological artistry that tells us very little about what actually happened. Or let's assume that God used the process of evolution to bring about the world as it is. The issue, of course, is not what God could have done. The issue is what God did do and what He told us He did. Douglas Kelly writes, It is not always realized how rapidly much of the Christian church accommodated its teaching on origins to 19th century theories of evolution and the vast ages required for it to take place. Nigel Cameron writes, as the new scientific thinking, first in geology and then in biology, began to take hold in the 19th century, biblical commentators hastened to accommodate their interpretation of Scripture to the latest orthodoxy in science. Philip Johnson writes, many of Darwin's early supporters were either clergymen or devout laymen. Supporters of evolution included not just persons we would think of as religious liberals, but conservative evangelicals such as Princeton Theological Seminary professor Benjamin Warfield. Douglas Kelly writes, a large percentage of conservative evangelical scholars refuse to interpret the Genesis text in its text in its plain historical or literal sense in order to accommodate it to the premises of the reigning worldview concerning origins. Richard Belcher writes, many evangelical and reformed biblical scholars have accepted evolution as the method through which God produced the first humans. With friends like that, you can finish the sentence. One notable pastor has remarked in reference to creation and evolution, there is hardly a more controversial subject among evangelical Christians. Now, here's what I want to say about that. If, if, if his statement is even close to accurate, 
then I would simply say that the very fact that it is controversial among evangelical Christians goes a long way in explaining why the evangelical church is so weak and tepid. A church that doesn't take God's Word seriously when it comes to the creation of the world and the creation of mankind will not take God's Word seriously when it teaches us about manhood, womanhood, marriage, and sexuality, which is coming fast and quick in this sermon series. And it's no surprise, therefore, that you can open up your Christian book distributor's catalog and find all kinds of resources that undermine sound doctrine. So be on your guard when you're flipping through that catalog. Brothers and sisters, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has no beauty and glory of its own. God didn't set His affection on us because He looked down and He thought, wow, now here are some wonderful contributors who will collaborate with me in speeding ahead my work in the world. It doesn't work that way. The, the, the beauty and power of the church is a gracious gift from God and the way that you receive the gift and the way that you steward the gift and the way that you abide and grow in spiritual beauty and spiritual power is by letting God's Word save you and shape you, rescue you and renew you, define you and direct you, establish you and strengthen you. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the world by means of His powerful Word. By speaking, He brought things into existence, told them where to go and what to do and gave them their name. And the big question that this church and every church faces is will we let God's Word tell us who we are? Tell us where to go? Tell us what to believe and say and do? We're either going to stand in the bright light of Holy Scripture or we're going to stumble around in the darkness. And remember this. People in this world are perishing. And perishing people don't need a clever church that is trying to toe the line on politically correct viewpoints and trying to soften the edges of biblical truth. What perishing people need is a faithful church that is proclaiming God's message and God's power. What lost sinners need is a courageous church that doesn't bend in fear when the Goliath state taunts us and threatens to eradicate us. If your knowledge of God doesn't put courage in your bones, then I'm not sure that your knowledge of God is worth having or sharing. That was the introduction. So, so, with that background in mind, okay, I want to share with you eight biblical perspectives that we must keep in mind when we are reading the Bible and thinking about the Bible in relationship to history and science. Number one, the natural world testifies to the reality of God. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20 teaches us that God shows us His eternal power and divine nature through the things that He made. The basic idea is that a person's handiwork tells us something about the One who made it. A product tells us something about the manufacturer. 
And in the case of creation, the natural world tells us something about the Creator. And in a more general sense, the natural world tells us something about the way the world actually is. You look up into the heavens and you see immensity and glory. You look all around and you see beauty and complexity and order and design. You look at mankind and you see personality, moral consciousness, and capacity for loving relationships. It is absurd to believe that the ultimate explanation for this immense, glorious, well-ordered, personal, moral, and relational world is lifeless chemicals moving about in a primordial soup. Chemical elements do not account for immense beauty. The impersonal does not account for personality. The random does not account for intelligent design. Dirt doesn't account for moral duty. The mundane doesn't account for love. Instead, we listen to the testimony of creation and learn that the Creator is there. And we reason that since He made the kind of world that He made, then He must be immense and powerful and wise as well as personal, relational, and moral. Number two our perception of the natural world is clouded. Although creation stands forth as a witness to the Creator, we human beings are hindered in our capacity to receive it. After telling us that God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived in the things that have been made, in Romans 1, Paul goes on to say that instead of being good stewards of this perception, we've actually turned ourselves into fools. Romans 1, 21-25 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see the problem? Instead of responding to the glory of creation as truth receivers who worship the Creator with grateful hearts, Sinners have rejected the testimony of creation and gotten muddied in our thinking and darkened in our hearts. Under the guise of wisdom, we played the fool. We rejected God's glory and exchanged it for idols. We rejected God's truth and exchanged it for a lie. And as long as sinners remain in this condition, we do not draw the right conclusions from the natural world. By way of application, this also implies that our philosophical reflections, our scientific investigations, and our historical studies will all be severely handicapped because we are looking at everything from the wrong starting point. You can imagine if you're flying a plane and you mistakenly start your five-hour flight just a few degrees off course. Not a big deal after 10 feet, but after flying a few degrees off course for several hours, you're going to be far away from your intended destination. A critical error at the beginning 
sets the stage for additional problems to arise and pile up later on. When human beings followed the course that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, they ensured that all of their future endeavors would flow downstream from the wrong starting point. The right starting point is to be a humble creature who stands in the light and worships the Creator in spirit and truth. The wrong starting point is to reject the light and invent your own version of reality in which it somehow makes sense to bow down before a golden calf or marvel at the words of Charles Darwin. Those who have gone down this errant path, and everyone has, as Romans 3, 10 to 18 teaches us, the people who have gone down this path need a profound renewal to take place in their heart and mind, which leads to point number three. God renews the hearts and minds of stuck-in-darkness sinners through His Word. The natural world testifies to us about the Creator, and we can call that testimony natural revelation. Natural revelation is good, but we are hindered in our ability to receive it. Therefore, we stand in need of special revelation. Special revelation is a way of referring to Holy Scripture. God has spoken words into this world and He caused these words to be written down for our instruction. Without these words, we remain in the darkness. But if we have these words and the Holy Spirit impresses them upon our hearts, then everything changes. As David said in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. When God's Spirit, who hovered over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2, when He hovers over you, then God spoke in words that are written down in the book will revive your soul, convey wisdom to your mind, gladden your heart, enlighten your eyes, straighten out your life. A sinful man, unaided by special revelation, will misuse natural revelation and go down many wrong paths. But a redeemed man who is indwelt by the Spirit and instructed in the Scriptures, although he is far from perfect, he will, necess- he will increasingly see the world as it truly is and will increasingly live according to God's design. Number four. <clears throat> the Bible, which consists of God's spoken words, which God uses to renew us, is a serious historical document. Listen carefully. The Bible is not a non-historical collection of spiritual musings. The Bible is not an elaborate fable peppered with some cute moral lessons. The Bible is not ancient myth that is supposed to stretch your mental horizons with timeless religious expressions. The Bible is not a spiritual metaphor for your journey toward God. Instead, The Bible brokers in real history involving real people at real times in real places. If the God of the Bible is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. If the God of the Bible did not rescue His people Israel out of the land of Egypt and then bring them into the land of Canaan, if the God of the Bible did not entrust the kingship to one David, the son of Jesse, from the tribe of Judah, if the God of the Bible did not hand unfaithful Israel over to the Assyrians and unfaithful Judah over to the Babylonians, if the God of the Bible did not send His own divine Son into human flesh as the descendant of David, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of Adam, if Adam was not the first man from whom God made every people on the planet, if Jesus, God's Son, was not crucified for your sins on a hill outside of Jerusalem, and if He didn't rise again in His body on the third day, and if He didn't ascend bodily into heaven and sit down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and if the exalted Lord Jesus Christ did not meet Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and completely change his life and make him a missionary who would preach the Gospel around the Mediterranean world and write 13 New Testament books. If these things are not so, then you are completely wasting your time with any so-called Bible truth. Take away the Bible history and there is no blood-bought grace. Go home, eat, drink, and tomorrow you may die. You simply cannot read the Bible and be indifferent to history. God puts Himself on the line by acting and speaking in real space-time history and by making claims about what He did and when He did it and where He did it and why He did it. The Bible is an amazing book. It's the most published book in the history of the world. It's the most criticized book in the history of the world. And if it were laden with historical errors, it would not be taken seriously and shouldn't be taken seriously. But when you open up your Bible and read it, which I urge you to do often, when you open up your Bible and read it, you realize that God is doing things and saying things that pertain to this world, the history of this world. And as such, it begs to be taken seriously. The Bible is a serious historical document. It recounts real history. Of course, it's not mere history. It's history with theological explanation and theological application, but the theology is tied to actual events that took place in this world. Number five, the Bible should be understood in its plain and straightforward sense. In other words, we should take the Bible at face value. Just like we should take our own dialogue with each other at face value. God's will is to make wise the simple. God's will is that ordinary people read the Scriptures or hear the Scriptures read and that they understand what it says. Ordinary people. You don't need a special course in decoding the secrets of heavenly speech. Are there illustrations and metaphors in Scripture? Of course. It's part of normal human discourse. It doesn't require vast knowledge to understand that when Jesus said, that it's better to gouge out your eye en route to heaven than to continue in lust and be thrown into hell. 
that he wasn't counseling people to actually gouge out their eyes. He was utilizing hyperbole to press home a simple idea. Don't spare any expense in getting sin out of your life. That's the point. We, we, we understand metaphor and illustration and hyperbole. It doesn't require a PhD in communication to recognize metaphors. But when Scripture recounts history, we shouldn't go hunting for a metaphorical explanation. When the Bible tells us what happened, we should take it as a reliable record of what happened. The book of Genesis is manifestly a historical book. It tells us about the creation of the world and what, what, what went wrong and how things went from bad to worse. It tells us about the calling of Abraham and God's plan to set the world right again and how that plan got worked out down to the fourth generation from Abraham. The entire scope of the book, from Adam being created on the sixth day to the death of Joseph down in Egypt, is accounted for by way of detailed genealogical, genealogical, biographical, and historical information that is given in Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 11, and in other places in the book. Genesis tells us what happened and when it happened in relationship to the lifespans of the key people identified in the book. And we should take its narrative of what happened at face value and therefore as real history. Number six, the Bible is the only perfectly trustworthy document in the world and therefore you should receive all of it as truth from God. The Apostle Paul teaches us in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. If the entire Bible is God's Word and is therefore backed by the trustworthiness of an all-knowing and faithful Father who wants His children to be established in the truth, then I want to remind you of an important implication. You cannot choose to receive some parts of Scripture but set aside other parts. Because you cannot view the book, the Bible, as a mixture of truth and error. If the Bible is a mixture of truth and error, then its authority is done away with. If the Bible is a mixture of truth and error, then the Bible itself is not the standard of truth. If the Bible is a mixture of truth and error, then who gets to decide what parts are true and what parts are not? Why not you, right? Convenient. Either God has spoken truthfully and clearly, or He hasn't. If He hasn't, then we're all just grasping at straws. If, but if God has spoken truthfully and has caused His utterly reliable Word to be written down without error, then our job is to close our mouths, open our ears, and learn from the mouth of the Almighty. And be sure of this, God is not amused when human beings twist what he said or charge him with error. Number seven, the Bible speaks truthfully about everything it addresses. Sometimes you will hear people say that the Bible is not a scientific textbook. Well, of course it's not a scientific textbook. It's not an economics textbook. It's not a political science textbook. It's not a military history textbook. But that's irrelevant. Whenever the Bible reveals information about something, it is revealing true information in whatever field of knowledge it's talking about. 
Pontius Pilate was the prefect of Judea. He presided over the trial of Judas, and he authorized the crucifixion. Peter and his friends caught how many fish in John chapter 21? I think it was 153. The flying creatures were created before the land animals without any chain of evolutionary descent. The Bible is not just giving us theological truth as if what matters is the theology and not the history. If the Bible tells us what happened, then it happened. And the one who is telling us that it happened knows more about geology, biology, astronomy, and physics than the combined expertise of every scientist on the planet. Do you believe him? Number eight. Last but not least, the most reasonable course of action for a historian or scientist or anyone is to trust what God has communicated about the world and to pursue further information upon that solid foundation. The wise scientist will say, I don't know what my experiments will uncover. I don't know if my hypotheses will turn out to be accurate. I don't know if and when I might discover plausible theories about this thing or that thing. But I can be sure of this. I can be sure that Scripture gives me a solid foundation upon which to build a reliable and growing system of knowledge. Our presuppositions about the universe shape the way that we study, the way that we reason, the way that we draw inferences and propose hypotheses. The astronomer who begins from the vantage point of unbelief in God and who believes that there must be a completely naturalistic explanation for the origin of stars, and who will only allow theories that agree with his naturalistic and God-ignoring assumptions, is conducting his entire research on a faulty foundation. And you expect me to take his theories seriously? In truth, the most unreasonable course of action for a historian or scientist or anyone is to reject what God has communicated about the world and to pursue all of your information without the sol solid foundation that the Creator has given. This unreasonableness is especially evident when it comes to the effort of some scientists to figure out how old the world is. If you assume that the way the world functions now is the way that it has always functioned, and if you do not believe what God has told us about the beginning of the world, and then you look back down the corridor of time and see this vast, dark space, and you're attempting to date things by working backwards in a world where God is a non-factor, and all of your reference points are material reference points, you attempt to interpret all of the physical phenomena in terms of physical causes and physical effects over the course of an indefinite period of time, which you wildly claim to be billions of years, and yet you're leaving out the most important information in the universe? If I had the ability to create a beautiful, fully operational, well-furnished mansion with exquisite grounds and gardens and fountains and streams and walkways, and I had the ability to create it, by speaking it into existence in a single hour. And that's what I did, and I told you that's what I did. And you chose not to believe me. 
And then you set about to determine the true age of this mansion and grounds on the basis of your understanding about ordinary causes and effects. Your entire project is based on a prior rejection of the truth. Now, I don't have the ability to speak a world like that into existence, but God does. And that's what He did. And He told us that's what He did. God is the one person in the universe who is properly situated to tell us how the world actually began. Because He was there and the whole thing was His doing. If you don't believe His testimony, don't expect me to believe your theories which you have built on the wrong starting point. From a biblical perspective, it is simply wrong to believe that the world has always functioned in the same way. Of course, The world didn't function at all before it existed. That's obvious, but it's important to say physical matter is not eternal. It didn't exist. And then, no thanks to the laws of physics, God brought it into existence. Further, the world did not become hospitable for life because of chance developments that took place over so many eons of time. God created the world fully functional and fully operational and fully habitable in six days. If we could drop in on Adam on his second day of life, we would have seen an intelligent man who had the ability to communicate. And he was only two days old. No infancy, no toddlerhood, no childhood, no schooling for Adam. God made Adam a fully functional and fully operational man and likewise for Eve in a fully functional and fully operational world. If I'm going to attempt to date the earth, the age of the earth, by analyzing the amount of some material that is now known to decay at a certain rate, I have at least two problems. First, I can't know for sure that the decay rate has always been the same, but the second and far more serious problem is that I do not know the amount of material that was present when God created the world. The creation of the universe is nothing less than the miraculous work of God. And it happened once. The creation of the world is not a repeatable event. How do you investigate a unique, miraculous, unrepeatable event? Reasoning backwards from subsequent causes and effects doesn't cut it. And attempting to find a purely physical explanation for what happened is utter nonsense. The most reasonable thing to do is to trust the testimony of the one person who was there. Now the miracle of creation, hang in there, we're we're almost done, but the miracle of creation isn't the only massive, unrepeatable event in the book of Genesis. The fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3 was a massive unrepeatable and catastrophic event in which a very good world which was not subject to corruption and decay began to experience corruption and decay. Then in Genesis chapters 6 to 8 there was a massive unrepeatable and catastrophic flood that engulfed the entire world. The flood destroyed the world as it then was, sweeping away and burying in a very short amount of time a massively large number of living things and cultural artifacts into the depths of the earth. A wise geologist or a wise archaeologist will take that as part of his starting point. 
for his work. But if you reject God's testimony about these things, then you are rejecting the reliable foundation of knowledge about the world that we inhabit. If you do not, I want to just make a little application here to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, many of you, maybe some of you are outside of Christ. We invite you to repent and believe the gospel. But to to my fellow Christians, if you do believe God's testimony about the creation of the world and about His design for the world, then you are standing on solid ground. But be forewarned. Believing God puts you wildly out of step with the unbelieving world. They will scoff and taunt and laugh and look down at you. And if you crave their acceptance, if you strive to be, to be known as someone who is socially and intellectually respectable in their eyes, then you will cave. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus, then you will have the opportunity to learn what it means to take up your cross and suffer for His sake. An anvil is a heavy piece of solid metal on which a blacksmith hammers away at hot iron and shapes it into the thing he's making. John Clifford wrote a poem called The Anvil. Last eve I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so thought I, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptic blows have beat upon. Yet, though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammers gone. Or as we sang earlier, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. Friends, the eyes of the the Lord scan the world of men to see if there is a man or a woman who will humbly trust Him. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that You would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the One to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at My Word. Father, I pray that You would put courage and strength and the readiness to sacrifice in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.